Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My co-host is Luce Nguyen, uh, a student at Oberlin College and co-founder of the Oberlin Policy Research Institute, an undergraduate public policy organization based at Oberlin College. Our guest is Maybel Romero, Assistant Professor of Law at the Northern Illinois University College of Law. We will discuss her article, Profit-Driven Prosecution and the, Comp- and the Competitive Bidding Process, which was published in the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology. So welcome, Luce and Maybell. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, Luce, would you like to start off by asking uh, some questions of Maybell? Sure. Uh, thank you, Professor Romero, for uh, coming here. Um, this was a certainly very interesting article and a very interesting way to look at uh, criminal law and the prosecution process. So would you like to talk a little bit about your paper and how you got to uh, write about this paper? Well, thanks so much, Luce, for also being here. It's really fun to be able to talk to co-hosts and, you know, talking with someone from Oberlin. It's really fun. Um, so, you know, just how exactly I got around to writing this paper is, um, you know, maybe this is going to sound a little bit odd, but when I started out as um, a visiting assistant professor transitioning from um, from practicing law to academia, I asked someone for a bit of scholarship advice. How do I go about finding good ideas about what to write about? And I'm going to be very blunt with what they said. They said, I, okay, either write about something obvious or write about something that makes you mad. So it's like, well, there are plenty of things in criminal justice that make me mad. So I will stick with profit-driven prosecution for now. I used to be a prosecutor in the extreme north of Utah in a, in a county called Cache County. And I also did prosecution services for Rich County as well. It's a neighboring county where um, sort of the state of um, Idaho and Wyoming and Utah kind of meet. And these were the sorts of issues that I'd see come up. Um, the ones I've described in my paper where prosecutors weren't necessarily ever um, hired on on a full-time basis, um, especially when you were looking at individual um, cities and towns so much as they were hired on as sort of these like part-time gunners who would try to um, put together lots of little contracts from these different municipalities in order to cobble together a living. And what I saw in my own experience was that that, that didn't necessarily lead to prosecutors who are focused on the things that I think that they should be focused on that. I think the ABA thinks that they should be focused on. Um, they are much more focused on sort of their, um, how would I say, their sort of personal economic enrichment, their own ability to keep collecting these contracts, their um, ability to please their bosses, be it a city council or a mayor or something along those lines. Um, and that used to trouble me a great deal. So that sort of popped out as the first thing that I should write about um, transitioning into academia. So you said you were a prosecutor in uh, northern Utah. Um, What particularly did you see that concerned you so much during your time as a prosecutor? So, I mean, there are a number of things that I did see um, that really troubled me. Um, The biggest thing being these prosecutors that would be hired on, not on a full-time basis, but they would be hired on through this sort of competitive bidding process that the paper describes. So what you'd see in certain smaller towns, especially, and I'm not talking about like a big city in Utah, like Salt Lake City or, you know, any big city around the United States. We're talking about, you know, rural counties, you know, suburban cities, um, 
places that can't necessarily afford to hire a full-time prosecutor. So what these um, local governments will do is actually put together what's known as a request for proposal. Just like, you know, for any other sort of project that a local government needs to have done, like building a road or collecting garbage, but this is prosecution services, you know, they're they're very different um, in nature than some sort of physical project that needs doing. Um, And oftentimes what you see in these requests for proposal, um, for proposals, excuse me, um, would be, you know, a list of different qualifications that they were looking for, a list of different services that these local governments needed to have fulfilled. But oftentimes they would focus on the fact that what needed to happen was that this prosecutor needed to be cost effective. And because it's a competitive bidding process, um, attorneys would try to um, outbid each other and kind of get down to the lowest sort of number that they possibly could. So you'd see attorneys undercutting each other um, left and right, trying to come up with the cheapest contract that they could um, really present to these local governments. And what's really concerning about that is you know, it, it leads to all sorts of incentives for these prosecutors who are hired on this sort of um, procurement system to not necessarily do a good job. It also leads to this sort of pressure, this sort of, um, you know, even just being able to put together a livelihood, sort of a pressure in trying to, you know, cobble together more of these jobs from other surrounding towns, um, you know, trying to not spend as much time as possible or as little time as possible on each individual case. Um, And so what really troubles me about this system of hiring on prosecutors in particular um, is that it, it introduces all manner of economic disincentives to do a good job as a prosecutor. So that was always very troubling to me. Right, right. And in your paper, you say that uh, the contracts are generally awarded to the lowest bidder in mm-hmm. the uh, lowest price theoretic, technically acceptable. Um, yes. Was this ge- is this generally the case throughout the country or? Yes. And at the time that I wrote the paper, and you'll have to excuse me because I haven't had a chance to really um, update this or look at it in the last little bit. Um, you know, you have about 35 states that, you know, allowed for this sort of procurement and prosecutors. Um, but then if you'd look at sort of their whatever statutes they'd have with regard to government procurement, um, it would, you know, they would specify that um, the bid that should be accepted should be, you know, the lowest, you know, possible bid that you can get out there. Um, so oftentimes, some of these local governments would be sort of um, they'd have their hands tied as to which bids they'd be allowed to accept. It's like, okay, we have to accept this lowest bid as long as it meets the basic qualifications that we've set out, so, such as, you know, this person having a, a JD degree and having a license to practice law. Um, so what you see oftentimes with these prosecutors and with this procurement system is that you'll you'll have brand new attorneys um, who are out there, you know, just out of law school, just past the bar, um, you know, collecting these contracts and doing the best that they can. Um, And I think this is really something that especially law students and new, you know, law school graduates should be really concerned about. Um, That to some extent, I think they're being exploited by this system. Um, And I'm hoping that a greater awareness of the risks of having a profit-driven prosecution sort of procurement system um, will lead to at least some changes to it in the states that still use it. That's really interesting. Um, would you happen to know uh, any particular watershed moments 
in history or the history of law that um, provoked this kind of privatization of prosecution. There was obviously the 1970s, 1980s backlash to expanded government. But mm -hmm. is there any other kinds of watershed moments that has led to this rise in private prosecution? I mean, it's hard to say there's like this one watershed moment in history that caused all of this because the, the entire history of the prosecutor in the United States is it, it's pretty unique compared to prosecutors in other countries where what you saw in you know colonial times um, was that prosecutors were funded by victims themselves. Um, they weren't actually funded by the government. They weren't some sort of, you know, seen as some sort of government function. So say, for example, if someone, you know, punched me in the face or something like that, and I wanted to have someone prosecuted for assaulting me, I would have to go hire my own lawyer to prosecute that criminal case for me, um, rather than relying on some sort of county attorney or district attorney or something along those lines. Um, so that was a really big divergence from anything seen in Europe or England at that point. Um, so, you know, you see sort of the American prosecutor starting off in, in sort of a very unique privatized role, as, you know, from the very beginning. Um, and what had, what happened over time was that um, the prosecutor's role eventually ends up getting absorbed by the government over time, but it did start as something that was private and victim funded instead. Um, so what you'd see is that these prosecutors, oftentimes they would have other practices on the side. Um, they wouldn't just do crim private criminal prosecutions, but they would have other business ventures. They'd have private practices and other sorts of positions that they worked on like that. Um, and generally what you saw is that you know, prosecution, you know, it wasn't necessarily the most respected of, you know, legal fields at the time. Um, when it finally started to go public, um, it, it was recognized even back then that, you know, you could make more money as a private attorney rather than as a public prosecutor. So, you know, public prosecutors, they were often young, they were seen as being incompetent um, and inexperienced. Um, so it starts off as very much of a private function, which ends up getting absorbed into something, you know, that we're more familiar with now over time. Um, so, yeah, it, it's quite a bit different. What you see in 1877 is that all the states by that point had adopted the use of elected prosecutors at one level or another, be it at a state level or counties or something along those lines. So it took a rather long time for the prosecution function to become something public in the country. Right. Um, going back to the privatization of prosecution, uh, in the 1980s, the uh, government of the United Kingdom required uh, local um, municipal services to uh, provide uh, to make all their uh, provided services privatized in certain uh, sectors. Uh, a 1995 report then detailed that uh, it had reduced wages for women, uh, reduced the number of women who were in male-dominated fields, and had reduced the wages in typically uh, women-dominated fields. Do you think that the increase of these uh, contracted prosecutors throughout the nation would lead to uh, further inequalities within uh, the prosecutorial system itself. I mean, 
I think that I hadn't really thought of that. So that's actually a really interesting question. Um, I would imagine that it would, frankly, Um, especially in these smaller communities that use this sort of procurement system. Um, You know, in a small town, everybody and their brother knows each other. Everyone knows each other and like what their background is and where they're from. So I would imagine that if you were, say, you know, a a woman attorney who's putting in, you know, a her proposal, or, you know, maybe you're a woman of color or something along those lines, you probably already have, to some extent, the deck stacked against you. Um, in that there are numerous studies out there that show that oftentimes women and women of color in particular, are automatically seen as being less competent, especially compared to their white male sorts of associates and contemporaries. Um, so I would imagine that that could potentially lead to a lot of inequality there and perhaps even more pressure to um, undercut the rest of the attorneys who are putting in um, their own bids as well. Um, so I would imagine that apart from even not getting selected in that sort of system, um, you know, a female attorney or attorneys of color and the like might might feel even increased pressure to um, to really um, undercut everyone and kind of bring their rates down as low as possible, perhaps even working at a loss. Um, one of the attractions for municipal cities to privatize some of their services uh, has included the fact that uh, quite often they can completely cut off all benefits of health care and uh, life insurance and whatnot. Uh, do you think that, you know, women, especially pregnant women and those with uh, chronic medical illnesses would be less likely to take a prosecutorial position given these lack of services? <laughs> I know that I would be much less likely to, frankly. Um, and yeah, that would be quite a big disincentive to taking any sort of position like that. Oftentimes, when you look at these um, requests for proposals, um, what they're looking for is an estimate as to what all of your costs are going to be, um, be it, um, you know, just your salary, as well as, you know, filing fees or expert witness fees and the like. Um, and I can assure you that none of these um requests really anticipate anyone asking for health care. Um, that would be very unusual, usually out of the question. So yeah, I, I imagine that would be sort of a, you know, sort of a need that just would not be met very easily and just would be a huge disincentive to women or pregnant women or anyone with really serious health problems. I, I certainly wouldn't recommend that someone do that. Uh, you brought up the, uh, the idea of fees Uh, earlier in your response. Um, A forthcoming paper in the Georgetown Law Journal by Professor John King at the Washington and Lee University School of Law, uh, privatizing criminal procedure, has detailed the uh, number of fees that, you know, defendants themselves must pay for uh, six versus 12 jurors, for uh, introducing certain witnesses and evidence. Uh, Mm -hmm. He has called this era, the Lochner era of criminal adjudication. Would you agree or disagree with that characterization? Hmm. I, I think that's a really kind of interesting, that's an interesting characterization um, where, hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think, you know, 
I really do think that this proliferation of fees like you're talking about is really, is really problematic. And, um, you know, I think, you know, trying to sort of, um, you know, I think I would agree with him at this point now that I think about it, you know, I'm thinking this through where it's like, okay, you know, you, you see, all, you know, this proliferation of fines and fees. And I'm sure you, you've seen this in my paper where a lot of this is also fine and fee driven. Um, apart from prosecutors under this sort of um, procurement regime, trying to um, cobble together a living, being motivated by their own economic self-interest and everything. Um, what you see in sort of these rural sorts of, um, in, in the rural reaches of the United States in particular, um, is very much of a focus on fines and fees. And it's really problematic. Um, oftentimes what you see is that, um, what you see is that there's much more of a focus on trying to line local government coffers. And in that sense, I think, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's like, okay, how exactly do we try to figure out what the most appropriate way for these, you know, cities to implement their own policies? Like how, how do we try to figure that out under these circumstances where these small governments get so little money in the first place? I don't know. Um, it, it certainly shouldn't be built on the back of um, the, you know, people who are coming into the criminal justice system, um, people who might have a hard time paying these fines and fees. There, there's got to be, there've got to be other more just ways is what I really argue in the paper. Um, but what you see is that prosecutors working under this regime, they are actually rewarded um, for bringing in as much money as they can. You saw this in um, Ferguson in particular. You see this in um, you know, several smaller cities and counties throughout the country um, where oftentimes decisions are made that are more beneficial to a local government's interest, like economic interest, rather than trying to um, really rehabilitate a defendant or really uh, provide for public safety or something like that. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that is rather problematic. And I'm really excited about um, this new paper that you're talking about. I've heard a lot about it. I haven't had a chance to read a draft of it yet. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. It was quite an interesting paper. Um, it overlapped yeah. with many of the things that you wrote about in your paper. Um, mm -hmm. About public safety, um, it does seem like a lot of these kinds of pressures on private prosecutors are not in the interest of public safety. And furthermore, it seems like it's exacerbating a kind of two legal systems, one for the poor, one for the rich. Um, mm -hmm. The Harvard Law Review wrote a, had a interesting piece after Ferguson, uh, Policing and Profit, uh, mm -hmm. something that really drove, was a, something that was really interesting to me was that there was a note that in Oklahoma, you can go and postpone your prosecution for up to three years for $40 a month. Do you think that the yep. combination of all these incentives will create essentially multiple systems of justice in the future that make it much harder for uh, the poor and minorities to get a fair trial? Uh, frankly, I think that's, that sort of bifurcation between, you know, 
upper class and the poor with different sorts of criminal justice systems already exist in large part. Um, that example out of Oklahoma is a really, really good one um, where, yeah, what if I don't have the $40 a month? I don't really get to choose when the prosecution moves forward with my case or not. Um, you know, I don't necessarily get to enjoy the same amount of agency even in deciding when to be subject to prosecution. Um, I would oftentimes see this as a small town prosecutor where, you know, if you were able to cough up more of a fine, you know, you might have a really sympathetic judge who lets you go home scot-free rather than having to do any time in jail um, because you were able to pay off um, more of a fine than anything else. Um, so I really do think that this sort of different system for the rich certainly exists. Um, a very sort of um, sort of a hyperbolic version of this, I think you can see in Los Angeles a lot of the time where you have not only wealthy people, but also celebrities. Um, and I think, you know, I grew up around Los Angeles. I grew up in Long Beach in California. And um, that sort of bifurcation between rich and poor was very apparent, um, even um, growing up. Um, and it was something that we all kind of took for granted, um, where, you know, if you could pay bail, you know, if you could pay for the best you know, private defense counsel and everything, um, you would certainly have very different outcomes than someone who didn't have any sort of financial resources, had to rely upon, um, you know, of course, a well-meaning public defender, but a very, um, a very time-pressed, very busy, very harried public defender. Um, so yeah, I think that those two different systems already do exist. So, you know, there's a, uh multiple actors in this system. There's uh, poorly funded municipal governments. There's uh, judges who are inclined to, you know, take fines rather than pursue rehabilitation. And there's the privatized prosecutors who are pressured to do these, to uh, work within this kind of system to push out as many fines as possible. Uh, in your paper, you detail a story about when you were a a contract prosecutor for a small local government in Utah, you chose not to um, pursue a high fine for someone who had been found to be dri to be uh, driving under the influence, and the judge essentially uh, ignored what you recommended and sentenced the defendant to a very large fine and no jail time. Uh, to what extent do you think that uh, this can be just uh, attributed to prosecutors and to what extent are there systemic uh, fixes that need to be made? I mean, I, I do think that there are rather large systemic fixes that need to be made. I think a lot of um, your smaller you know, local governments are feeling a lot of financial pressures due to um, a great amount of devolution of responsibility to these small local governments. That's sort of a problem. They can't afford necessarily to provide a lot of services without more help from the state or the federal government, but they're not getting that necessarily while having to cover more responsibilities out of their own coffers. Um, so I think that there are rather big systemic problems here. However, the, the prosecutor always is able to exercise some discretion as to whether they want to prosecute someone, whether they want to move forward with a case or not, whether they want to get some sort of deal. Um, so in that sense, I really do think that prosecutors are still 
the most important and most powerful agent potentially in changing this sort of systemic problem with focusing just on um, sort of a profit-driven criminal justice system. Judges are important, of course. Defense counsel, of course, are also important. Um, But I really do think that prosecutors can lead the way on this. In your paper, you talk about uh, the prosecution standards of the American Bar Association and the National District Attorney Association. Um, In 1935, a case was decided before the Supreme Court, uh, Burger versus United States, which established that it was, quote, it is as much the prosecutor's duty to refrain from improper methods calculated to produce a wrongful conviction as it is to use every legitimate means to bring about a just one. Part of the ruling in that case was that the prosecutor had violated uh, Canon 5 of the Canon of Professional Ethics of the American Bar Association. Um, do you see a similar parallel case could be made here with privatized prosecutors? I, I really do think so. And I think, you know, you, you see Berger making reference to these, you know, sort of to the canon that you were speaking of. And, you know, a few decades after that, we start getting the ABA putting together, you know, these model rules and sort of prosecution standards in particular. So they're, they're rather analogous to each other. And I really do think that um, what you see is that, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the ABA standards for prosecution um, really encourage governments, be it the federal government, the state government, um, local governments, to actually be to actually have full-time prosecutors, prosecutors who are able to devote their um, whole careers to being um, ethical, effective um, prosecution. Um, And I think, you know, what you see here is that there's so many, there's so many incentives to act wrongly, for lack of a better way of putting it, unjustly, to not actually be taking, you know, the interest of justice and only justice at heart when you are working under this competitive bidding process. I really do think that there's a danger of self-dealing. There's the danger of acting on one's own self-interest in particular. And this really does, I think, violate those ABA prosecution standards. Um, The problem, though, to some extent, is that these prosecution standards are um, rather aspirational. Um, They're not necessarily um, binding upon a state unless a state wants them to be. Um, So to some extent, what you see is that a lot of deference and a lot of um, there's a lot of laxity when it comes to actually punishing prosecutors. Um, You're starting to see some states really coming down on prosecutors a bit more, um, I think, harshly in a good way. Um, For example, in California, where um, if a prosecutor commits a Brady violation, perhaps they're not turning over um, exculpatory evidence to defense counsel, they might actually get charged with a felony themselves. So it, it's heartening to me to actually see some real, um, some real consequences coming about um, with regard to prosecutorial misconduct. Um, but yeah, I do see some parallels there still. Um, you know, the prosecution standards, they really still try to clarify the question as to um, who the prosecutor's client is. You know, prosecutors are supposed to work solely for the benefit of the people that they represent. And I do think that this sort of RFP-based contracting system really undermines that goal and really incents people to act 
um, in sort of the total opposite fashion than they should be in sort of the same way that you see in that burger case. Um, going to uh, defense counsel, um, there is, you know, a large power imbalance between uh, government, the uh, prosecutor with a strong amount of government power and, you know, these public defenders who, as you note in your paper, have less than, were received less than half the budget of state prosecutors' offices in twenty and twenty twelve, uh, two point three billion dollars for uh, public defenders versus five point eight billion dollars for uh, prosecutors. Do you think that one of the main ways that we can start to reverse this trend could be increasing that amount? Well, absolutely. I think you could talk to just about any public defender and they would be thrilled to say, well, why don't we equalize your salary and your resources to that of the prosecutor? Yeah, they they would be very thrilled and they would be much more effective, I believe. Um, How that's ever going to happen in a lot of places um, is beyond me. It will take a long time. Um, You know, while you might see in a lot of larger cities, sort of these reform-minded prosecutors, um, at least supposedly reform-minded. I, you know, there are a few quibbles I might have with some of them. Um, honestly, criminal defendants are still rather politically unpopular. Um, you know, people don't want to necessarily pay taxes knowing that they're going to public defense a lot of the time. Um, so I think that that is going to be a rather difficult sort of equalization to ever reach. Um, I hope that it happens. I think it's starting to in some larger cities, um, but I think it will take a while for that sort of mindset to spread throughout the country. I think this will be, this will be my final question. A uh, a study by the West Virginia University in the American Society for Public Administration by uh, Robert Day Dilger, Privatization of Municipal Services in America's Largest Cities, found that cities with stronger employee unions across the board were less likely to privatize any of their services. Do you think that the solution to privatization is increasing the strength of of public employee unions in these small towns where there are uh, relatively low per capita incomes and uh, low municipal spending? Yeah, you know, I, I like the idea initially of public utility um, in public employee, excuse me, unions. Um, you know, and I think being able to band together and demanding at least maybe um, sort of minimal contract rate for you know the, an expected caseload or something like that might be a really good place to start. And I think that that's something that even you know our state bars throughout the country could potentially take the lead on. Um, to some extent, though, I get a little bit antsy about um, public safety um, employee unions, such as um, prosecutor- prosecutorial unions or police unions in particular, in that those that already exist um, have been known to sort of throw their political weight around once they band together, not just for their own um, financial well-being, which, you know, I, I do think that everyone, you know, including prosecutors, deserve a sort of fair living wage and everything. Um, but they also tend to band together to um, really advocate for regressive criminal justice policy. And that's sort of a little bit of a sticking point for me, um, where if we were able to restrict um, what they did to 
um, really just looking at their own compensation to being able to, you know, improve, um, you know, the, the sort of, um, the sort of environment in which they labor, then yeah, that's great. Fantastic. But if it's really banding together and also advocating for really bad policy, then I have a little bit more of a problem with that. So thank you so much, Mabel, for coming on the program. And thank you, Luce, for providing such a wonderful moderation. And thank you so much, Luce. And thank you, Brian, for inviting me. Uh, thank you, Professor Romero, for uh, letting me have the opportunity to uh, interview you. And thank you, Professor Fry, for this great opportunity to be on your podcast. This is the backdrop to a strip joint, where burlesque rides roughshod over the bodies of its dancers and fringe people mingle with its customers in the clapping, clamoring mist of smoke and whiskey fumes. It's today's story of survival. It's today's story of sex and violence. Killing of a Chinese Bookie, starring Ben Gazzara, produced by Al Rubin, written and directed by John Cassavetes.